0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Science, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Galina Limorenko, doctoral candidate in neuroscience uh, with a focus on biochemistry and molecular biology of neurodegenerative diseases at EPFL in Switzerland, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Henry Greeley, the author of CRISPR People, the science and ethics of editing humans. What does the birth of babies whose embryos have gone through genome editing mean for science and for all of us? In November 2018, the world uh, was shocked to learn that two babies had been born in China with DNA edited while they were embryos. As dramatic a development in genetics as the 1996 cloning of Dolly the sheep. In this book, Hank Grilly a leading authority on law and genetics, tells the fascinating story of this human experiment and its consequences. Greeley it explains what Chinese scientist He Kui did, how he did it, and how the public and other scientists learned about and reacted to this, this unprecedented genetic intervention. The two babies, non-identical twins, uh, twin girls, were first CRISPR, people ever born. CRISPR, clustered regularly interspaced shoot, palindromic repeats, is a powerful gene editing method. Greeley not only describes her experiment and its public rollout, aided by a public relations advisor, but also considers, in a balanced and thoughtful way, the lessons to be drawn both from these CRISPR babies and more broadly from this kind of human DNA editing germline editing that can be passed on from one generation to the next. Greeley doesn't mince words, describing her experiment as grossly reckless, irresponsible, immoral, and illegal. Although he sees no inherent or unmanageable barriers to human germline editing, he also sees very few good uses for it. Other, less risky technologies can achieve the same benefits. We should consider the implications carefully before we proceed. Hello, Hank, and it's really nice to have you here today.
2: It's my pleasure.
1: Okay, so I would like to start by asking you, how has the pandemic influenced you and your work?
2: Uh, The pandemic um, has had varying effects on me. Uh, At first, it actually made me, well, it seems to have been associated with me being more productive It got rid of some things that ate up a lot of time, like travel. I never realized how much time I had spent preparing for going, doing travel until I didn't travel anymore. I haven't been in an airplane since February 22nd. And I was quite productive for a while. I wrote some about the pandemic, mainly about uh, so-called immunity certificates. Um, And then about three months ago, (laughs) for the last three months, I've had a hard time writing. I think I've gotten... I've gotten pandemic fatigue. It's sort of, uh, it's been hard to stay motivated and disciplined the longer this has gone on. Happily, I got my first vaccination on January 20th. The second's due on February 10th. I hope I will be able to return to a more productive mode uh, when I'm fully vaccinated, but we'll see. Um, It's going to be really interesting to see not just how I, but how the whole world has ch- has been changed perhaps permanently by this experience.
1: Hmm, interesting. So you had some time to reflect perhaps on, as you say, on your travel um, habits. And um, so how did you get over this perhaps uh, pandemic fatigue or do you think you're still in it? <laughs>
2: I think I'm still in it, um, but I'm hoping to be coming out of it. And of course, for those of us in the United States, there was not only the pandemic, but the amazingly chaotic political situation that also weighed on us. But January 20th, uh, there was both the inauguration of a new president and I got my first vaccine shot. I'm hoping that that meant it was a new dawn, a new day and a new life, and I will be back to full productivity soon. Excellent.
1: So do you do any teaching during this time?
2: Yes, I've been teaching quite a lot, actually. I think I've done, I'm currently teaching two courses and I taught three in the fall. Um, They're all Zoom. Uh, We are completely virtual. But fortunately for me, they're all relatively small classes. If I can see everybody's face in the screen, um, which for me is 24 students is max, uh, then the class is actually pretty good. If it gets bigger than that, um, it's just uh, it's very hard. But as long as I can see everyone, the class experience feels pretty good to me and I think feels pretty good to the students. And I've been fortunate that I haven't had to teach a large class. And the teaching is is nice. It it anchors me. It it helps me remember what day of the week it is, which the pandemic was beginning to erase. So that has been a useful centering experience uh, during the periods when I've been teaching. In between terms, life is a little less structured.
1: I'm glad to hear that's going well. (laughs) So can you tell us a little bit more about yourself, so your background?
2: Sure. Um, I'm trained as a lawyer. Uh, My only advanced degree is a JD, an American law degree. As an undergraduate, I was an undergraduate at Stanford where I majored in political science. I then went to Yale Law School. Um, but I've always been interested in policy-related issues. How I ended up doing what I'm actually doing now is sort of a combination product of of preferences and chance. Uh, I've always liked science. When I was a freshman in college, I thought I was either going to be a scientist or somebody doing public policy. I wasn't sure which. Um, A bad grade on my second midterm and my third term of advanced calculus made my decision for me, although I think I overreacted. Uh, But part of my problem in being a scientist was I was interested in all of it, not not any one part. I practiced law for a while after being a law professor and wasn't all that excited about that, Uh, not after being a law professor, after being a law student. Wasn't all that excited about practicing law, but it did mean that I met my wife through a blind date set up by her sister, who is a lawyer with me at the law firm. Uh, She's a physician. And she's now a retired physician, but that really made the difference in my career in that it focused my interests in health law and policy, and then ultimately in law and biosciences and policy. At the same time, I was teaching energy law and natural resources law. And in 1991, I sat down and said, I can't do both of these. You know, they're, they're both too big. Um, each one is individually too big, and collectively, they're way too big. If I do energy law, the big issue for my career is going to be climate change. And I'm afraid I just don't think we're going to have the political will to do what we need to do to help our grandchildren. So that would be depressing. If I do health law, the big issue in the United States is going to be universal access. And I think we are going to get there. We're going to have a Democrat elected in 1992. We'll get universal access. That'll be really exciting. So I chose health law. Um, And then, of course, we did get a Democrat elected in 1992. And Bill Clinton and his health plan crashed and burned eliminating any good hope for major health policy reforms for a decade or two. Uh, So I'd already committed to the biocide. The Human Genome Project was starting up, and I moved from health policy and access issues into the bioscience issues. Uh, It really appealed to the science lover in me, uh, and I've never looked back. I started working on genetics issues. Then when Dolly was born, I, I moved to I added cloning, which led to human embryonic stem cell research. For the last almost 20 years, I've done neuroscience issues. I've done assisted reproduction. I'm a bit of a dilettante is an ugly word, but but I like jumping from topic to topic within the overall theme of the ethical, legal, and social implications of advances in the biosciences for our societies. So um, how did I get here? I married a doctor. In part, how did I get here? I've always liked both science and policy. Uh, wherever, However I got here, I really like being where I am. I'm very happy uh, with my career and my job.
1: That's a really interesting trajectory here you have for your career. And something that you mentioned earlier, the um, uh, the role the chance played in it. So maybe could you expand a little bit more, specifically because we have a lot of younger um, researcher listeners who are usually quite set, uh, thinking uh, really set about their career path and uh, without considering how much possibilities there are from the chance side. So maybe you can expand a bit? Uh,
2: happy to. And I, I talk to, to young people all the time. I am, I'm paid primarily to be a teacher. Um, and guidance and counseling is part of that. I think planning is fine. I think planning is a good idea, unless you take it too seriously very few people i know are doing today what they very few people middle-aged and up that i know are doing now what they thought they would be doing when they were 20 or 25 or even 30. Uh, the world throws curves at you and you need to be flexible and be willing to adjust what your plans are to what what is open Um, people do differ in terms of their personality some people plan out things more than others Uh, Some are are more interested in chaos. Uh, I think I tend a little bit to the latter side, although not that much. But if things look interesting, exciting, um, it's worth thinking hard about following them, even if they weren't originally in your plan, because whatever you end up doing is very unlikely to be exactly what you have planned. So basically stay flexible and you know, prefer things that are interesting uh, to you to things that aren't.
1: Excellent. That's really good advice. <laughs> all right. So uh, in your book, you bring together the amalgam of all of your expertise from ethical, legal and uh, by scientific uh, uh, sides. So can we start by uh, describing why you wrote the book?
2: So this is my second book, uh, and it's interesting to compare them. I'm also a parent. We have two children, and the second child turned out very different from the first child, even though we thought we were doing everything the same. The second book is different from the first. (laughs) The first was an idea that came up from one sentence, two sentences in a friend's presentation at a meeting in uh, Münster, Germany, in October of 2010, and it got me thinking, gosh, She said, and then what happens if we can use stem cells to make eggs and sperm? And I thought, well, what does happen? And that book was the ultimate result of exploring that issue. This book happened because I found myself fascinated by Hu Jong-Kui and the CRISPRed twins. um, And I started writing about it. I ended up writing three or four, I think ultimately five or six, but after, after the first two or three articles, I thought, wow, I've already written about 40,000 words on this. Maybe it makes sense to turn it into a book. So whereas the first one was me answering a question, the second one was me finding a topic that really interested me in writing in enough aspects of it that that it seemed to, be, to make sense to pull it together into a book. Uh, and I, I think that decision was right. I think it did make sense to pull it into a book, but it had a a very different feel and a very different genesis from the first book. And they're both good, just like both my kids are great, uh, but they're different.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's something that's uh, really a uh, scene in, in the book that you're writing it perhaps, you know, to yourself first to trying to find out and try to reason and think about it. So well, deeply.
2: yeah, everything I write is, is really the, the most important audience. is always me um most of the time when i'm writing something if it's especially the things that i write because i want to write them as opposed to because i get my arm twisted to write them are almost always i want to figure out what i really think about something and until i've put words on paper which is of course a dead metaphor until i've i've put um things into my computer's memory bank that then get displayed as words on a screen uh i find that i don't really know what i think So in both cases, and and really for almost everything I do, I have some idea of what I think, but the process of writing really forces me to justify and clarify to myself what I really believe about something. Um, And I find that rewarding.
1: Great. Um, Right. So can we circle back a little bit to that presentation in in Germany? So can you explain to us what is the germline editing?
2: Ah, so that was the first book. Different topic. Mm-hmm. That one was about, uh, the first is called The End of Sex, published in 2016 by Harvard University Press. And it's about the idea that we can make eggs and sperm from skin cells, basically, and people will use that to make lots of embryos and use a process called pre-implantation genetic diagnosis to pick the embryos based on their genes. Really interesting. I think it's an important thing. But that was the other book. This one is about human germline genome editing, um, which is changing DNA in a person, but not just changing the DNA in cells, in the cells that make up 99.999% of us, not just changing the DNA in our bone marrow or in our lungs or in our kidneys, but changing DNA in cells that include the gametes, the eggs and the sperm, or often the precursor cells to sperm and precursor cells to mature eggs, because when you modify the germline, you modify something that can live on past ourselves. You modify my lung cells. When I die, those lung cells die. Everything's gone. You modify my sperm. Well, when I die, that modification may not be dead if some of that modified sperm has formed. A child has gone into the the formation of a child, contributed half the DNA of a child, and that child then may have a child of his or her own that would be modified and so on. So the germline, non-germline distinction, um, which in the trade is usually called germline versus somatic cell, the somatic cells are the body cells that aren't eggs and sperm or eggs and sperm precursors. People are much less concerned about somatic cell modification. We talk about it as gene therapy. There are some issues with it, particularly its potential use for enhancing rather than treatment purposes. But it lives and dies with the patient. Germline, many people feel differently about because it has the potential to carry on through the future potentially of our entire species. So germline modification different from somatic modification, they're both editing. And what's made this, people have talked about this possibility for 30 or 40 years, what's made it both really worth talking about and, in fact, actually real, has been new ways of doing DNA editing that are much more efficient, accurate, cheap, and easy. Um, And those ways involve CRISPR. Uh, clustered, regularly interspaced, short palindromic repeats. So we can all be very happy that whoever named it, named it in a way that gave it a short pronounceable acronym like CRISPR. CRISPR has made DNA editing an order of magnitude or two easier than it was before. It's not the first DNA editing, just like the Model T was not the first automobile. But like the Model T, it's the transformative one because It's democratized the technology. Everybody can do it. High school students can do it and are doing it. And so CRISPR has made it easier, much easier to think about modifying eggs and sperm. And then to everybody's surprise, including mine, Hu Zhongqui, a Chinese scientist, actually did it, or at least appears to have done it. One of the problems with this topic is there's so little really reliable information but he claimed to have done it, and um, seems like he probably did.
1: So who is Hu uh, uh, Kui, and what exactly did he do, or at least what we know?
2: So Hu John Kui is, is currently a convict. <laughs> he was convicted and sentenced mm-hmm. to three years of prison for what he did. He's a high-rising, uh, young, brilliant Chinese scientist whose actual work had focused on single-cell analysis, microfluidics, um, but got very interested in human gene editing. Uh, he studied uh, in the US. He got his PhD at Rice University. He did a postdoc for a year at Stanford, where I am with a friend of mine named Steve Quake. All of that was on single cell analysis and, and microfluidics. Uh, he then moved back to China I was drawn back to China, given a very nice startup package and labs and setups at a couple of companies. And at some point, he went back to China, I think, in 20, gosh, I need to know the answer to this, around 2014 or so. And at some point, he decided to pursue human germline editing. He he did a little bit of work, unpublished, though he has talked about it. He talked about it at various meetings using mice and monkeys. Um, But then he advertised for and got some... Couples who wanted to have, well, whom he convinced to have the world's first germline-edited babies. These were couples where the husband was HIV positive and the wife was HIV negative. Their HIV is very stigmatized in China. Uh, and these people wanted to have children but were very worried that if they had children, the children would have HIV. Nowadays, a, a manageable but chronic disease, but, but something you would rather avoid and certainly avoid for your children. Um, there are ways to do that without going through gene editing, but they weren't available to those people in China. So what Hu said was, look, come into my research study. You'll go through in vitro fertilization. We'll, take, we'll harvest eggs from the woman and harvest sperm from the man. We'll make embryos, but then we will change some of the DNA in those embryos. And specifically, we'll change DNA in a gene called CCR5, which makes a protein that is not coincidentally called CCR5. There is good evidence that people whose CCR5 proteins have been disabled, so that the genes don't make functional CCR5, are much, much more resistant to infection with HIV. So we're going to take your embryos and we're going to modify them so that your children cannot become infected with HIV. That's what he said. The reality is have a substantially lower chance of becoming infected with HIV. Seven or eight couples said yes. Um, He successfully, sort of successfully modified several of the embryos. In about March of 2018, he transferred some of those embryos into the uterus of one of the women involved. Uh, Two of the transferred embryos took, became fetuses, and eventually became babies. And in sometime in early October of 2018, two non-identical twin sisters were born whose CCR5 genes He and his team had modified. He also, there was another baby from gene editing born in the summer of 2019. We know basically nothing about that baby other than that it was supposedly born. So there seemed to be three babies where He used CRISPR to modify the DNA in the embryo and that were then moved into women's uteruses, became fetuses, and became babies and as far as we know, and, and I think I think uh, that we're pretty confident about this, those three are the only humans who have had that done to them. That's what he did.
0: At least uh, that,
2: so that's that's, that's mm-hmm. at least that's what he says he did. One of the problems with this is there's basically almost no independent verification of any of this.
1: Yeah, that's exactly what's my other question. So, what was the setting uh, of? Uh, where all of these um, procedures took place and all this work took place? Was it clinical trials? What sort of of medical setting was that?
2: So he was a professor at um, a university in southern China. He arranged with in vitro fertilization centers, fertility centers, um, assisted reproduction centers, and several hospitals in southern China to do the work there, the IVF there, the actual gene editing, I believe, was done in his lab at his university. Uh, but the IVF centers were, were, there were several of them around South China that made the embryos and then transferred the embryos back in. <clears throat> he has sometimes referred to it as a clinical trial. Um, he actually listed it on a Chinese index of clinical trials, but he listed it only a couple of weeks before it became public. And he, it looks like he listed it. Many journals now demand that if they're going to publish a paper coming out of a clinical trial, that the clinical trial must have been listed on that national index. The United States has such an index. The Europeans have such an index. China has such an index. So it seems, it seems very, very likely that who listed it on the clinical trial index because he'd already submitted a paper about it to a major journal, and they said, you have to be listed in the clinical trial index. The interesting thing about that is through an enterprising reporter, a guy named Antonio Regalado, who's a reporter for the MIT Technology Review. Regalado was really interested in Chinese developments in CRISPR, and he was watching the clinical trial index, and he saw the clinical trial listing in about November 7th, November 10th, sometime around then in 2018, and investigated it further, wrote a piece that was published on Sunday, November 26th of 2018, saying, his Chinese scientist says he's trying to make CRISPR humans, trying to edit human embryos, at which point, He then decided he had to go public, He released five videos on YouTube about his procedure, and an associated uh, press group that for over a month had been doing a story about what Hu was doing also released their story. So that Sunday night, it was Monday morning in China, Sunday night in the West, suddenly out of the blue, the world is told, well, we didn't give you any advance warning about this, but we've been uh, modifying human embryos, and guess what? Two babies have been born.
0: Slash NBN50 to get 50% off.
1: So, what was the legal landscape that enabled, or rather maybe failed to prevent this from happening? Yeah.
2: So, the legal landscapes in this area are almost entirely national. They vary from country to country. There are a few regional uh, treaty things, a little bit with the Council of Europe, a little bit with the EU. Uh, But this was all done in China. So it's Chinese law applied. Um, and it was unclear what Chinese law said about this. Um, he took the position that it wasn't illegal. And I think if he if this were in the United States, he would have had a pretty good argument. Uh, but China is not the United States. And when the Chinese government in Beijing decided it was illegal, they found some Vague language and regulations that they said made this illegal, and that's and ultimately prosecuted him. and in, in December of 2019, he was sentenced to three years in prison. There were some things he did there that were clearly illegal. He seems to have forged the um, human subjects committee approvals. At least the Chinese government says that he forged them. Again, the lack of any independent verification is really frustrating. And China has not been opening up and talking much about what they actually, what allowing outside observers to see what actually happened. But China says he forged these IRB, these, these human subjects, oversight committee permissions. He also clearly cheated on the men going into IVF. China has a law that I think is a bad law, but is clearly their law that people who are HIV positive cannot use assisted reproduction. Mm. It's it's almost a perverse law in some ways, because you could avoid the risk of having a child with HIV that they received from a father by using a very simple form of assisted reproduction that involves what's called sperm washing, which is exactly what it sounds like. You wash the sperm. HIV does not infect sperm cells but it can be in the fluid that accompanies sperm cells and ejaculate. If you just take a sperm sample, wash everything else away, except the sperm and use those sperm to fertilize eggs, you've got an egg that cannot have gotten HIV from its father, but in China that was illegal. So he's about to use sperm from HIV positive men in an assisted reproduction context. That's illegal in China. So apparently, according to the Chinese government, He hired people who were HIV negative to pretend to be the sperm donors and take the HIV tests. Uh, If true, that's clearly illegal. Forging the IRB certificate is clearly illegal. Whether making a a gene-edited embryo in China was illegal at the time is much less clear. It is clearly illegal now in China because they've changed their laws after the He Jiankui event to clearly make it illegal. In many countries, but not all, um, this would have been illegal, but in a variety and an odd variety of different ways. Um, So some countries will actually say you cannot do this. Some countries have laws dating back to the 1980s or early 1990s saying vaguely you cannot do genetic modifications in ways that probably apply to this, but aren't clear. In the United States, we have this odd situation where Congress has said this FDA cannot approve any such research. Um, And because FDA says you can't do this without getting FDA approval, FDA is our Food and Drug Administration regulator of drugs and biological products. FDA says an altered embryo is a drug or biological product. You can't do this research without our permission. Congress has said, FDA, you cannot give that permission. So it's illegal in the United States, but it's illegal in this sort of odd backhanded way.
1: So perhaps uh, it's a uh, general consensus would be that it, it's both illegal and unnecessary from biological point of view?
2: Well, the unnecessary is trickier. Um, and the, the illegal isn't everywhere. And actually this... And Congress has imposed on the FDA approving it is a year to year thing. Every year they keep re um, reenacting it. It's in the annual appropriations bill. So it could go away next year pretty easily. Um, but the, the unnecessary is trickier. Um, I argue that it is largely unnecessary because, for the most part, you can achieve. If, if your goal is to avoid passing on a genetic disease, let's say, you can achieve that through an older technology that's been around for over 30 years, the one I wrote about in my first book, The End of Sex, pre-implantation genetic diagnosis. You use IVF, which you would have to use in order to do gene editing, and you examine the genes, the whole genome of one or two cells from the embryo, and you say, ah, this embryo will get cystic fibrosis, this embryo would not get cystic fibrosis, and you just transfer into the woman's uterus the safe embryos. Almost everything you'd want to do through gene editing, you can do through pre-implantation genetic diagnosis, which means it's not likely to be very important. Now, the differences are, if you need to change a bunch of genes, five, 10 genes, doing it through selection. PGD is really embryo selection. The couple provides whatever genetic variants they've got, they have, and then you pick among the, the offspring. If you, if you need to pick a particular version of five or 10 genes, you're not going to have, uh, you'll have an awful lot of, you'd have to make an awful lot of embryos to get one that has the right version of each of those five or 10. That would be something that you could do more easily through editing. It wouldn't be as easy as just doing one gene, but you can imagine it. The issue there is we don't know very much about conditions and traits that involve five or 10 genes. We're pretty sure they exist, but we don't know enough to say, okay, you need to modify these five genes. Similarly, with enhancement, so if what you want to do is not prevent a disease, but make somebody taller or make somebody stronger or make somebody faster or make somebody smarter. Um, It almost certainly involves multiple genes. And it may be that these genetic variants that do these good things aren't in the parents. The man and woman who come together to make a baby may not have the right variants. Then you could use editing to do the enhancing in those embryos. The problem with that right now is we don't know about and we don't know genetic variants that enhance things we know that there are hundreds of genes involved in intelligence let's say some very powerfully involved and that if the gene is broken intelligence is very very low we know almost nothing about genetic variants that increase intelligence even the most optimistic people think they can explain maybe one or two IQ points by what we know currently about genetics so you would need to use editing to do some enhancing technologies. The problem is we don't know enough about genetics to know any enhancing traits that we can do genetically. And frankly, I think it's going to be a long time and maybe uh, we'll never know enough to do that. So that that's my argument why I don't think this is likely to be very important. Um, in between, there are a whole bunch of arguments that people make about whether it's ethical, moral, et cetera, um, and the book, looks at those as well the the book's structure and part of it just tells the story because i think it's a fascinating story of who he was is what he did and then the really interesting part how we found out about it uh, what the reactions were who else was involved that's that that's a the first half of the book is really a narrative about this event the second half of the book is really my analysis of the pluses and minuses of the technology, whether it's something that should be banned, whether it's something that should be allowed, whether it would be useful, um, how it fits into current laws and rules of medical ethics—that's the back end of the book.
1: Okay, so before we uh, dive into that um, uh, more ethical part, so what is your point of view on the monogenic hereditary disorders? So I'm really glad that you brought up all of this complexity that we cannot uh, we cannot target right now with the CRISPR. But what about just uh, diseases that we can uh, target? Something like hunting chains due to expansion of specific repeats in a genome. Would that be easier from a legal point of view to uh, sort of regulate and uh, actually something that could, could be useful?
2: So I'm not sure that it's easier from a legal point of view, but it's mm-hmm. got a lot more ethical and moral support mm-hmm. using this technology to avoid a disease prevent a disease or prevent the birth of a child with the disease, which is a little bit different from preventing the disease. You're preventing a child who would have the disease and instead getting a child who doesn't have the disease, that, that is controversial, but it's not nearly as controversial as using it for enhancement purposes, which will, it looks all have to be uh, multigenic as opposed to monogenic, many genes as opposed to just one gene. However, and this is my argument about pre-implantation genetic diagnosis, in almost every case you can avoid having a child with a monogenic disease or trait of any sort. By doing embryo selection, you don't need to do embryo editing. And embryo editing adds on top of selection yet another technology with a set of costs and risks. There are a few exceptions. So let's say Two people meet and fall in love and want to have children, and they both have what we call an autosomal recessive disease. They each have two disease-causing versions, two copies of the disease-causing version of a particular gene. Uh, Let's use cystic fibrosis. Uh, You have to have non-functional CFTR genes in order to get cystic fibrosis, and you have to have two copies, one from your mother, one from your father. If two people have one copy each, then the odds are 25% that any of their children will have two of the disease-causing copies, but you could avoid that through pre-implantation genetic diagnosis. If two people with CF, with cystic fibrosis, meet, fall in love, want to have children together, their children would have to have two copies of the CF version because those are the only ones their parents have to give. So if that couple wanted to have a child without cystic fibrosis, the only way they could do that and have a child that is genetically theirs would be to edit the CFTR genes to give that child, to give that embryo, which would become a child, one at least one functional copy of it. Are there couples like that? I'm sure there are. Are there very many of them? Undoubtedly not. The other possibility is if you've got what's called a dominant disease, and Huntington's disease is an example of this, that's where it takes only one bad copy of the gene to give you the disease. You get two copies, one from each parent. If you've got one copy, you get the disease. If you've got no copies, you don't get the disease. Some people actually get two bad copies, they get the disease. With Huntington's, they tend to get the disease a lot younger, but Many of them don't get it until their late teens or early 20s. They could, in theory, want to, be a, want to be a parent. Their children would have to have the disease because they would have to inherit at least one Huntington's version, one disease-causing version of the gene, because that's all the, the, the parent who has the disease has to give. Again, in couples like that, they'd have to use gene editing in order to have a child that was genetically... Theirs, but who didn't have the disease. I, I put special emphasis on the word theirs because the child is slightly different from the genes that they have. It's Huntington's gene has had maybe 30 base pairs cut out, 10 of the CAG repeats cut out to take it from 50 CAG repeats to 40 CAG repeats and safety. Um, so it's 99.999999% genetically the same as the parents. The editing has accounted for that one tiny degree of deviation, but has allowed the parent to have a child that won't have the disease. How many people are there in the world like that? Again, not very many. So I think there are a handful of people, well, more than a handful, but um, thousands, but not hundreds of thousands of people around the world for whom this would be necessary for them to have a healthy child. Assuming that we can't fit we don't learn how to fix the disease in the children after they are born, which may happen, um, but for most people, this isn't going to be necessary in order to avoid a monogenic disease
1: yeah and uh, that's something that you mentioned earlier that uh, with regards to technologies that we have, CRISPR makes it easier, but it also makes uh, the possibility of uh, the personalized and targeted cheap medicine that uh, could be possible in the future, isn't it?
2: Right. I mean, one of the interesting things about my cystic fibrosis example, even so people are trying to use CRISPR to cure cystic fibrosis, to take living people and change their DNA so that they make the proper copy of the CFTR gene. It's a little tricky because that gene is in a, a whole bunch of their cells and lots of parts of their body. It's easier when you've got an eight-cell embryo that you're modifying than, than when you've got a... I, a 37 trillion cell adult person, but people are working on that. And actually even small molecule drugs have come out recently that seem to be really improving the quality and quantity of life for people with CF. So for some of these diseases, it may be that treatments during the lifetime will cure or sufficiently treat people that you don't need to avoid the birth of somebody who's genetically destined to get the disease. You, they may be genetically destined to get the disease, but if the disease were perfectly treatable, it would—it might not matter. It's, it, it's, a, it's a nice example of the way everything is connected. Uh, changes in one area of medicine, changes in one area of the world or the law have implications on everything else.
1: Yes, yeah, so and we already know that there are treatments for the somatic Uh, Disorders with the gene therapy, like spinal muscular atrophy, for example, in children.
2: Right, but we don't have very many examples. There there are a few Mm -hmm. gene therapies that have been approved. Um, Even there, especially with some of the muscular dystrophies, it's unclear how effective the gene therapies are. And of course, with a gene therapy that's only been developed in the last couple of years, we don't know how long it will last. We won't know whether it lasts for 10 years until 10 years has gone by for the first subjects to have received it. So gene therapy is really exciting and promising. Right now, it's only curative for a very small or substantially treat, substantially beneficial for a small number of diseases. That number should get bigger. How much bigger it will get, we don't
1: know. So in your book, you tell this truly fascinating contemporary story that I must might stress, something that is happening during our time, which is really odd. <laughs> but is he really the only scientist who aspired to do that? Or maybe someone, some other scientists were also trying to do this?
2: So as far as we know, no one else got as far as modifying embryos with the intent of transferring them for possible pregnancy and birth. Uh, mm-hmm. been, there's been no revelations of that. No one has said, yes, I was about to do that. No whistleblowers have said, uh, yes, I work for so-and-so, and he was trying to do that. Subsequent to the ho Jong-Kui announcement, um, at least a couple of scientists have said, yeah, I'd be really interested in doing this, including one in Russia named De- Denise uh, uh, who announced he wanted to do it. Uh, the reaction to ho Jong-Kui's announcement was not what he had hoped. I think that's fair to say. He thought he was he thought he was going to be hailed as a hero, and instead he was almost universally attacked and condemned. Um, almost one or two people said, "Well, this wasn't such a big deal. This wasn't such a bad thing." Almost everybody, including me, thought this was criminally reckless because this had never been done before in humans. And he hadn't even done it successfully, or at least never published anything about doing it successfully in non-human primates. These little babies, these babies are guinea pigs, and no one knew, and no one still knows whether they're going to be bad effects long-term in their health. One of the frustrating and, and interesting things about this is he did not actually make the change he wanted to make. He does seem to have disabled the CCR5 gene in both copies in one of the twins. In another twin, he only disabled it in one copy, so she's still susceptible. And even in the twin where he disabled it in both, he disabled it in a way that's never been seen before in nature. There are people who have a particular mutation. They lack 32 base pairs of this gene. And that's how we know that they tend to be highly resistant to HIV. There are people like that. They don't make the protein. They seem to resist HIV. Some of them have lived to be in their 50s and 60s, so we know that the absence of the gene isn't necessarily, isn't definitely deadly to them, but we don't really know what the long-term effects on their health are. Um, He put these babies at at unreasonable risk for very small or imperceptible benefit, and that is worth condemning, and he has been widely condemned for that. The fight right now, for the most part, isn't really over or today, it's over. What happens if in 10 years we know how to, we've done enough research with non humans, et cetera, and research in vitro and petri dishes that we're confident this is relatively safe? Let's say as safe as IVF or as safe as IVF with preimplantation genetic diagnosis. Should we use it then? That's where the, the battle line is right now. Nobody thinks that we, we have that level of safety today. So almost nobody um the, there is a strong international consensus that this is wrong today for basic reasons of risk and risk to babies who after all didn't give their consent to anything um that's uh that's the current issue if in 5 to 10 years or 15 years or however many years people are convinced that it's probably safe then then the fight will become more current. Right now, even Rebrikov, the Russian who wanted to do it, Russia said, no, you can't do this. This is a bad idea. And he said, well, I won't do it until it's, unless or until it's legal. That There could be a scientist someplace in some country with a hidden lab secretly doing this. Um, there's no way to know uh, that that's not the case. Having seen what happened to, uh, however, universally condemned sentenced to prison, not clear to me why somebody else would want to try to go down that path and I think one of the important lessons from this is science with a capital s the, the world community of science needs to ostracize and condemn people who do this kind of ultra risky research uh, to deter other people from trying to do it
1: so is this process typical for the new and emerging technologies so something that we cannot anticipate so we need to rely on the science, on, on the scientists' integrity integrity in this or do we need some other uh, sort of preemptive regulatory laws or how, how can we regulate it?
2: So this kind of jump is not unknown, but it's not normal. Mm-hmm. Normally someone says, here's my goal, here's the research protocol I'm going to use. They get approval from an IRB that is not worthy the from a human subjects um, uh, committee where the approval has not been forged, they convince that committee that this is sufficiently safe and beneficial that the research is worth doing. In many places, they have to convince somebody else. In the United States, they have to convince the FDA that it was worth doing. In the UK, there's something called the HFEA, the Human Fertilization and Embryology Authority, that they would have to convince. Um, And it goes step by step until at some point, the the researchers, the researchers' institutions, which also don't want to be at high risk for lawsuits or bad publicity, and the regulatory authorities will say, okay, this is ready, try it in humans. Um, That's the normal way things proceed. The gene therapy has been, people have been working on gene therapy for over 40 years. It's taken a long time, but it's gone step by step. with pluses and minuses, every once in a while someone has died in gene therapy research, and that's set back the research for a while. That's a much more normal way of proceeding. Who uh, huh, really jumped the gun uh, in a way that I think is unconscionable?
1: So uh, then, if everything is taken through the correct channels, do you see the human germline editing as a part of, uh, of normal science um, sometime in the future?
2: Maybe. Um, I have, I seem to have an instinct for moving to the middle of every argument where I can get shot at by both sides. I don't think there's anything inherently evil or wrong about germline modification. Some people seem to think of the human germline, think that the human genome, germline genome is the Ark of the covenant, is the holy grail is something that is defines who we are as humans and should not be messed with. Um. But there is no such thing as the human germline genome. There are seven and a half billion human germline genomes. Every one of us has a different germline genome. Even identical twins have slightly different germline genomes because of mutations that have happened after their conception and after they split. Um, and And those genomes change every generation because of mutations that happen in the sperm and the egg cells as they are being created. So I don't have exactly the same DNA sequence that either of my parents got from their parents. And my kids don't have exactly the same sequence that I have. Um, And furthermore, human activity has the effect of modifying the genome in that when we change the environment, and that's what humans have been doing for at least 20,000 years, we encourage certain genetic variants and discourage others. Everybody alive today. Has multiple copies of a gene that helps them digest starch. 20,000 years ago, people had few or no copies of that gene. And then humans invented agriculture, and it became a real benefit to be able to digest starch better. People who digested starch better lived longer, lived healthier. Their children who inherited it lived longer, lived healthier, had more children than other people did. That human germline genome was changed by the invention of agriculture. Similarly, their genetic predispositions toward type one diabetes, until the 1920s, type one diabetics died and uh, was called juvenile onset diabetes. They died usually in their, uh, somewhere between the ages of about five and 15. They didn't have kids. They didn't pass their genes on because they didn't live long enough to have kids. Then those interfering doctors came up with insulin as a way to treat diabetics. And now they can live longer. They can have children, and their children can inherit this risky gene—not terribly risky, but still risky gene. Medicine changes the human germline genome. So I, I, I don't, I don't attach a mystical significance to the human germline genome. I don't think this is really that major a step. If people are worried about enhancement, they should regulate enhancement, but genome germline editing could be used for enhancement or non enhancement but on the other hand, as I've already mentioned, I don't think it's likely to be very important. Pretty much everything you'd wanted, everything that you can't that we can do, that you would want to do, almost always can be done through pre-implantation genetic diagnosis. And so I annoy the people who think this is immoral because I don't think it's immoral, and I annoy the people who think this will be a wonderful benefit because I don't think it's that important and therefore everybody will be mad at my book for one reason or another.
1: <laughs> you bring an absolutely fascinating point that has sort of maybe not bothered me but something that I'm really interested in. So uh, the accidental editing due to perhaps environmental factors or some compounds like thalidomide something that we didn't know about that could actually edit germline. Why is it easier to reconcile with compared to the targeted genome editing? Why did it bring such a, such a sort of acute response of the whole scientific and lay community?
2: That's such a great question. Um, and it's deep and it goes to all sorts of technologies and not just this one. And part of the answer is most people don't realize that their germline genome is changing every generation. And it's usually mm. actually not the result of radiation or chemical exposure or so on. Every time a cell divides, mistakes get made. Um, th- there's good proofreading, but it's not perfect. So it's thought that on average, when a cell divides, about 10 base pairs get changed. Now that's 10 out of three and a half billion base pairs. So it's not, it's not a huge amount. I'm sorry, four and a half billion base pairs. It's not a huge amount, but it's not a tiny amount either. Most people don't know that. Uh, but even if they did, we seem to worry a lot more about human cause changes than we do about natural changes, random changes. And there's something, there's, there's some level of moral significance that we add to the human, because of the human intentionality. One can say, and, and many have, particularly in the context of genetically engineered agriculture, look, doing it With gene editing, you're much more precise. You know exactly what you're doing. You make only the change you want. You don't make any extra changes. Doing it through breeding or other old-fashioned ways, all sorts of other uncontrolled things happen. And yet the fact that people are intentionally doing it um, makes many people react to it very negatively, even though it may lead to better results and often will lead to better results than the way it goes on in nature, which is random and uncontrolled and sometimes good and sometimes bad. So I do think there's the, this odd reaction to, to human. We, we're, we we do not often sit down and rigorously compare human intervention to natural intervention, human changes to natural changes. We view the human changes as somehow in a space by themselves. I don't think we should, but we do. <laughs>
1: Yeah, for sure. That's such a thought-provoking and stimulating uh, argument. And uh, that's something that your book really brings, uh, uh, brings out, and really makes you think. Good. <laughs> okay, so we've taken a lot of your time. So I would like to ask, what are you currently working on?
2: Well, as I mentioned at the beginning, I'm currently not working on as much as I should be. I'm currently trying to get out of my pandemic slump late pandemic slump. But when I get out of that slump, um, I've decided I like writing books. Uh, And so I got a third book in mind. Uh, I've got the title. That's about all the words that are down, the three words uh, of the title, Playing With Life. And in it, I want to explore the ways in which genetic and other technologies, our bioscience technologies, will change, not humans, but non-humans will change the biosphere. Um, We already live in a biosphere that has been completely modified by human activity, but our new bioscience tools give us the ability to modify it in specific intentional ways, uh, ways that, say, make mosquitoes not be able to transmit malaria or ways that make um, algae in the ocean take up much more CO2 as a way of trying to deal with climate change. The new biological tools give us the ability to do things that seem very odd indeed. What can we do? What should we do? How should we regulate this? That's playing with life. Um, but I need to—I uh, need to start writing. But that's what I'm working on. I'm working on. I'm working on working on. I'm working on starting playing with life.
1: Sounds like a really interesting project, and uh, well, you you've got a title, so it's uh, half halfway through, basically, isn't it?
2: Uh, <laughs> yeah, the three words out of a hundred thousand—that's roughly halfway through. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Just a little, a little bit left, just right. to write it all. <laughs> so, where our listeners can find more information about the book and also your work?
2: Well, um, the book. Uh, publishes on February 16th. It should be available in bookstores everywhere, as long as they're Amazon or the equivalent. Published by MIT Press. MIT Press has a page on it. So if you Google MIT Press and uh, Greeley or CRISPR CRISPR people, uh, you should learn more about it. My work in general, uh, Google me and look at my webpage at Stanford Law School. And uh, it'll list, there'll be a list there of my publications in the areas that I work in
1: fantastic all right so thank you so much for such a fascinating discussion and our listeners can find more information about the book as you said well thank
2: you thank for giving thank you for giving me the opportunity and giving me such good questions
1: have a nice day
2: thank you you too